0: Welcome back to another episode of Being an Artist is Fucking Killing Me. I'm Corinne. And I'm Rainey.
1: Welcome back. Happy New Year.
0: Happy 2021.
1: Woo! we're doing a fast five things because we've been gone for three weeks which i feel like they're not going to be that fast at this point but there are five things that we want to talk about yes because a
0: lot has happened and i feel like we there's a lot we need to talk
1: about so number one i got covid
0: number two Sia compares ableism and nepotism three dance makers a pause four canadian politicians traveling for the holidays what the fuck and five <laughs> lockdowns round two Yeah. Um, So essentially, uh, if you didn't see me posting about it, Lucas um, wasn't feeling very well on December 16th. He had a fever. He works um, as an essential. His work has been deemed essential. He's one of the project leads on the (laughs) site that's going up construction right downtown um, Toronto
1: hundreds of people coming and going probably.
0: Hundreds of people coming and going. They're masked up. They're screened every day. Lucas is a project lead is screened every day. They are working separately. They're working in specific groups. Lucas is the only one that's kind of going a little bit more in between because of his position, but he wasn't feeling very well. And he and his apprentice who was working with him also weren't feeling well. They went and got tested. The apprentice tested first because he had a really high fever. Lucas Had a fever one day through the night, Um, but then it wasn't there in the morning. We were fever checking him before he went in, obviously. And uh, anyway, the apprentice came back positive. And then two days later, as did Lucas. What that meant is that we needed to spend two weeks uh, in lockdown, (laughs) quarantine. Isolation. In in isolation in our bedroom. And we spent, you know, (laughs) two weeks together in this bedroom. (laughs) (laughs) So funny. And I showed no symptoms at all the entire two weeks that Lucas actually went through his isolation. I was like working out every day. I was taking care of him. I was reading. I was kind of relaxing over the holidays. Then we had Christmas and I was fine for two days. And then I started showing symptoms. So, um, and then I tested positive for COVID, which would have been, I guess, around 16 to 17 days after Lucas's first um, symptom. So it's just been kind of a crazy month. I've been in my house for a full month. We spent Christmas uh, in isolation with COVID. We spent New Year's with it. And it's just been a really weird experience.
1: Yeah. We were talking about before about how like viral load is a thing. So like maybe you're exposed to COVID once and you don't get it because your body just like kicks it off. Yeah. And so like maybe that was like the case with Lucas, Mm -hmm. you know, like he's working with so many people. They might not. They might be distancing and they might be wearing masks, but if it's, if you're around it all the time, eventually totally.
0: you're going to get sick.
1: And then the same thing with you and then the rest of your house.
0: Yeah. We live with, them. Um, if you don't know, we live in like a house. So we have the top floor with our own bathroom and space and everything. And then, um, my, our best friend Danica lives like right below us. And then our other roommate, Lindsay lives there. So Lindsay also tested positive. Um, and then Danica for some reason has yet to test positive, which is really crazy. If you think about it. Um, so she's been in isolation for a month going on five weeks, because if you come into contact with someone, you have to go from two weeks of your point of contact. And mm-hmm. we did our best trying to like stay in our upper, upper level. And we did for two weeks when Lucas had it. And then for those two days where we thought we were okay, we were staying in, it was Christmas day and, Boxing day. So we were like making food together and like celebrating being together. And so then we don't know what happened, but like it got through the house and it's a very weird virus. I'm not a doctor, so I have no idea what your like what the scientifics are behind it. And from my understanding, nobody does because <laughs> public health and the hospitals, you guys. I don't want to say they suck because
1: they're doing their best with the information
0: that they're they have. So, they're so overwhelmed. But from someone who like had it <laughs> and had to go through all of like the phone calls with public health, <laughs> you like see why there's so many cases. You like understand why there's just like so many holes in the system and they're overwhelmed. I didn't get, you're supposed to get a call from public health the moment that you test positive. I didn't get my, ho- my call from public health until six days after. Whoa. So, Yes. I got my, and we were told very varying information from the hospital mm-hmm. and also public health and then the doctor's hotline. So right. it was really a really crazy experience. And anyway, maybe we should do like a whole other episode about it. Cause I could literally talk for an hour <laughs> about right what happened and like the exact details of how it was so confusing and a very crazy time, but totally, it, it was a lot. And you know, it's like we were talking about before. I was telling Corinne, like, I take this virus very seriously. I'm not a denier. Oh yeah, were, I was very lucky. My symptoms were pretty mild to medium. Lucas had medium symptoms. He was having some more issues than I was, but still was. We never had to like be hospitalized or anything. Um, so we're very lucky that our symptoms were wild And that's also like not the case for everybody,
1: right? Statistically, mild to moderate sy- symptoms is the case for most people. Like the yeah. the percentage of people that need to be hospitalized is still pretty small. Mm-hmm. If we look at like statistically.
0: And I mean, I am experiencing some long-term effects. I like, I'm already prone to headaches and I have headaches. I had really bad congestion, um, which is a weird symptom I've been told because I didn't have anything in my throat or any like type of things like that. But so my ears are like really blocked still a little bit. And Mm I don't have a sense of smell or taste. (laughs) That's the worst one. (laughs) So I literally can't smell myself if I smell bad. It's been a fucking treat. I can't taste food. (laughs) I can't smell like any candles. I can't smell myself. Like I can't smell my own BO which might be like TMI but like you don't really understand how concerning it is until you actually are like do I smell that all the time and like I started getting I mean this is uh I started I kind of started getting my sense of smell back not really I still can't smell anything but like I a little bit so it's a little bit better than it was and Lucas was making jokes because I was the only one out of the house who lost their sense of smell and taste But I was like, I think I'm starting to smell things. And Lucas was like, oh, man, I was really enjoying farting in our bed. (laughs) (laughs) So it was like a weird, weird symptom. But what we were saying is like, it's just it's I'm not trying to make like fun of it. I'm not. It's so serious. But somebody asked me, like, are you happy you got it? And no, I'm not happy. I got it. Obviously, it would have been nice to spend the holidays with like our like our small gathering, like Corinne, like we had planned on, it would have been nice to like not be stressed that my symptoms were going to get worse and not go through this whole situation. But what has made it better is that like, I'm no longer scared of like the virus. I like know how it affects my body. Mm -hmm. um, And I'm, I don't like live in fear anymore, which is really nice. I'm still wearing a mask. I'm still like socially distancing. I'm not like throwing ragers or anything, but I don't have that like, Built up anxiety that I had before. And maybe this yeah. is only me that um, every time I like leave my house or every time someone like comes in, I like know how my body responds to the virus. And yeah, that's been really nice. It feels like a bit of a, I don't want to say a weight off my shoulders, but it, it, it's been nice not to be afraid anymore.
1: Oh, totally. I yeah. had a similar experience when my roommate got sick. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, I've seen someone. Now it's not just like what I'm hearing on TV or what I'm hearing through news outlets. I've like, Watch someone experience it
0: mm-hmm.
1: and been able to see that they've been okay, mm-hmm. and something with somebody with like people would describe a pre-existing condition, you know? Yeah, for you sure. Know, which I think if I were to get sick, and maybe I have already, and just didn't know because I've been living with somebody, totally, I would assume that I would fare just as well, if not better, than this person. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Just like mm-hmm. being a healthy, active person.
0: Yeah. So it's just an experience. It's a weird virus, and like. <sighs> Nobody, there's so little information about it. And, like, it's not to be scaring people, and it's not to be like telling people it's fine. Like we're not doing any so Like we're not virus deniers. I'm not a virus denier. I don't say like, don't go get fucking party and don't go to Mexico. Don't do all these crazy things. But um, I think it's important to know, a, you can still get it. Like Lucas got it in a mask, uh-huh. socially
1: distanced, screened at work. Those things are just precautions. They're mm-hmm. not the end all and be all of keeping you safe
0: yeah and I and me maybe that was like naive of me but I definitely thought like I'm wearing my mask I'm sanitizing my hands Mm. I'm socially distancing it's fine like I thought that was like I was being and you are being safe that's like what they're telling us to do and that's the best you can do but like I thought that was like I that made me like not get the virus Mm -hmm. you know but like that's not the case so just a don't think that like you can take your mask off once (laughs) because you can still get the virus with your mask on and B. um Symptoms are weird. Everyone's symptoms are completely different. So. Totally, it's just a weird, weird time. Number two, Sia compares ableism and nepotism,
1: and admits to both of them.
0: What the fuck? This like pissed me off so much. Have you? Did you watch the trailer for the no. the music video that they're talking about? No, it's is it bad? Oh 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 oh! It's a lot. Okay, so for those of you that don't know, Sia, for my understanding of the situation, Sia is coming out with like a film. That mm-hmm. is also going to be like her album. So a way to introduce her new album is she's created like a film around a character named Music mm. who has autism, who's on the spectrum. And Kate Hudson plays the older sister and ha- is taking care of the the kid with autism, essentially. And the entire video is going to be based around like what music the the child can see. And like what they're seeing. So it's like all the CM music goes into like video dance scenes. Okay. And that's my understanding from like watching the trailer. Right. But the person that Sia has cast music as is Maddie Ziegler, who is a completely able-bodied, privileged, (laughs) like to the nth degree of privileged dancer. And there are a lot of people coming out being like, this is obviously shouldn't happen. This is complete fucking bullshit. Mm -hmm. Why would you cast somebody who's actually on the spectrum in this character? And I completely agree.
1: (laughs) Totally. And she like, didn't she say something along the lines of like, it's not ableism. Well, I guess it is, but it's also nepotism because I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't do this project without Maddie. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And then she like goes on to say essentially that her, she's like, it wouldn't work because you need like an able-bodied person. And she says that she tried, they tried with someone who was. Um, on the spectrum once and the person was really stressed out and they had to eventually go with Maddie, which believe that if you want to, but I think that's a complete load of bullshit. Right.
1: Also, like, did you, if they were stressed out because they're not used to working in the way that you're asking them to work, like Mm -hmm. maybe you should adjust your working practices because you're doing the work, represent an entire community of people.
0: Yeah. And also like, shouldn't you maybe audition? Like I'm sure you auditioned lots, but maybe you should like try with someone else.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Autism is such a huge spectrum and people present so differently, especially women. Yeah, she was casting a female autistic dancer. Yeah.
0: And the part that pisses me off the most so she's coming out to her defense being like, you know, well, watch the film and then tell me your judgment. Like, watch it. You. I tried. This is just like not this. So A, go spend money on your stupid bullshit music film. Cool. whatever. <laughs> then she goes on a Twitter rampage because people are upset about it, yeah. Of course. Um, and there's lots of like actors and dancers who are on the spectrum who are like, "You should have cast me. You should have. You can literally cast anybody in this group." Like giving yep. her options, and her response is, "Well, maybe you're just a bad actor." Wow, that's what she said to somebody with autism on Twitter who said, "There's an entire community." That you could have cast. For example, a lot of people would have done it last minute, like me. Yeah. And her response was, maybe you're a bad actor. So.
1: (sighs) That's so terrible. It's
0: so terrible. It also
1: just shows that she doesn't give a fuck. No, like she like doubled down. Yes. Her like double downing also on her privilege she's like mm-hmm. I don't care I made it I did what I wanted and no yeah. like no, what are you gonna do about it because there are gonna be people that also don't care about that
0: yeah and it's it's like really upsetting and I like was a, I was like a pretty big fan of CM music like, I thought like she was super cool her music yeah. was, I've been like listening her Christmas to her. album was great yeah I've been listening to her songs since like I was in like grade eight like when she like <laughs> wasn't even showing her face you know like yes. And I thought she was like, super cool. And I I like love her music. She makes good music. But this is definitely makes me a little bit disappointed in her as an artist. And I don't respect her as much. I will say no.
1: And I also like wonder, I also don't respect Maddie. Because at what point as a dancer, do you say, especially a dancer like Maddie, who has a lot of pull, who has a lot of say, who is working a lot all the time? Mm hmm. To be like, take that on yourself. Well, she did talk. I think she did bring
0: it up to her. In the article that I read, she did bring it up and was like, I don't know if this is like, okay, that I'm doing this. And if you look at the trailer.
1: But she still Mm -hmm. took the job. And
0: I guess Theo was like, well, I'll protect you because I'm like your other mother. And then in the article, (laughs) Theo was like, you know, I realize now that I can't protect her from everything. And I was like, ew. "Ew." If you look, watch the trailer and maybe you just need to watch the trailer, you... As, like, a dancer or an actor, how she's portraying it is like, you should know that that's not okay. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's like very hard to watch the, even the trailer, I find. Yeah. Pretty grotesque to like for Sia to go through with this project. But people oh, are going to make money how they want to and make what they want to, but it's pretty upsetting. Don't yeah. spend money on the movie.
2: Don't spend nice. money on the
0: movie. Watch the trailer. Maybe get an idea of what we're talking about. Yeah. Let us
1: know your thoughts. All right. Number three, Dance Makers is on a pause. We've been talking about Dance Makers a few times because it was announced that after their 2020, 2021 season, that it would be coming to a close because of a, probably the pandemic funding space, you know, all of the things that are happening right now in Toronto. Um, But there's been this petition circling,
0: essentially a group of people. I got sent it from, um a dancer, artist, Amanda Davies. Um, But there was a group of people who wrote up a request on, um, to give to dance makers, um, basically asking them to take a minute to just pause the shutdown of dance makers and stay open or like take time to like reevaluate, maybe try and reopen or rebrand or something, From my understanding mm. of it. And it just starts off as like, we as a population of professional artists actively participate in the dance milieu, have received your announcement in the form of the dance makers newsletter and social media post that the company will close permanently in July, 2021. This is a formal request to pause this, action effective now we are requesting this pause because as a publicly funded entity that is most vital and relevant to the communities it serves it belongs to us a population of dance artists choreographers dance administrators dance technicians designers and engaged public and they are we are aware of the tangible assets within the physical space and request that they not be placed on auction or sale oh wow aware of the renewable funding dedicated to dance and request to be included in the processes and outcomes of the structured organization's 46 year fund accumulation so yeah so I, a bunch of people signed it it looks like there's like over over 300 over 300 signatures mm-hmm.
1: um
0: and then it got sent to the board on december 16th and we've been getting slow updates um essentially the board has asked a small group of the people that signed the unpause i'm assuming the, group members that organized the whole thing Mm -hmm. to come and speak with them and in the emails that we got from the the group I want to call the the pause working group they are asking people questions like what kind of space would best serve the dance sector community in Toronto what are the core values and what is essential to the re-envisioned dance makers because essentially we are now re-envisioning what dance workers is and what the community needs Um, how is space defined as it relates to a revision dance makers what are the future possibilities for dance makers and extend beyond the physical space and how could a dance makers address? address the emergent needs of the dance sector in this moment. It's a lot. And uh, movement, it's like nice to see people stepping up and trying mm-hmm. to save institutions, especially big institutions like Dance Makers.
1: Yeah. And if you've never been to a show at Dance Makers or never used their space, it's it does provide a lot. There's like multiple rehearsal spaces that you can rent. There's a black box theater space. There is green rooms. It's you can rent it for parties and events and it's really something that I think is integral, A, because it's been around for so long and people know it. In an accessible part of the city, it provides a lot. And mm-hmm. to see it go was like really disappointing when we first saw that in November.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's nice that this um, Let's Pause group, working group, I think is what they're calling themselves. That's what they've been signing off their emails as, is doing this. And I guess we'll see where this goes. I mean, it, as a realist, it's hard to see how far this goes. Mm -hmm. But let's hope for the best on that one.
1: I hope that that the community backlash or involvement then helps with funding because it's it's like a partially publicly funded space, right? Ontario Arts Council, Canada Arts Council, Toronto Arts Council, like those things should be pulling through for spaces like this. What, What the fuck?
0: Well, that's what I said from the very beginning, though. I mean, I don't know if it's like a funding thing. Right. Do we, we don't know if it's a funding thing or if we don't know, just like, like we heard from numerous people that for a year in 2018, 2019, there was just like nobody in the building, like nobody was working there. So what, what, why are they closing? That's, I think, a big question that I would like to know. I need to be answered before I understand why. Like, is it, do they not receive funding? It, it seems crazy to me that after 46 years, they would not receive funding, but Totally, yeah. I, I'm very interested to see what the what the re what the f- true reasoning for it is, and yeah. will that ever be made public? Yeah, totally. Right. Number four. So your government tells you to stay home and isolate for month on month. The premier tells you, the MPs tell you, the entire government tells you to stay
1: home. And then a bunch of them fucking travel internationally over the holidays. And lie about it. Yes. And cover their fucking tracks and lie about it. This is so... I'm just going to throw numbers out there. There was two people in Ontario government that traveled over the holidays. Twelve from Alberta. (laughs) That makes me laugh so fucking hard. And uh, and I'm just like not surprised when I like was reading the articles and like trying to yeah. get all the information and numbers yesterday. I was just like, cool, cool. Two Alberta. from Manitoba, right? Yes. Two from Manitoba, four from Quebec, two from Saskatchewan. And what I'm finding the most interesting. How
0: many in Ontario, sorry?
1: Two. Two. Okay but the finance
0: minister and an MP. (laughs) Again, it's not funny. It's actually like really sad and
1: it incredibly, incredibly, terribly wrong. It's like incredibly classist because it's like you guys can stay fucking home and do what you're supposed to do. I put that in quote. And we're just going to do what we want because like we can, you know, A, afford to travel right now because we've had steady fucking jobs the whole time. And B, don't really care because we're going to follow the rules and quarantine on either side. Or like also like the whole shutdown system is fucked like so fucked.
0: Yeah. the fact that i could fly from here to bc and just be like back and forth it's fine mm-hmm. or from here to calgary and get a rapid test it's fine but i can't fly to manitoba to see my family
1: is yeah. like where what what's going on there's like what the fuck's happening totally it's so different from province to province and bananas and the other thing that i'm finding funny about this while i was researching it yesterday is that now that people are getting mad that politicians have been traveling People are coming out to say that they've traveled. There's like, there was a few, it was like one of the Saskatchewan, a couple of the people from Quebec and Manitoba were mm. like, oh, we traveled too, but not over the holidays, but like over the summer. Mm. And so they're like voluntarily giving this information and then stepping down from their position because of yeah. it. And I don't understand, like, I don't know if that's helpful. You know, quit my job to save face because I traveled. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I don't know why, but for
0: some reason in the summer when things were more open, yeah, it doesn't feel as crazy. Totally. Numbers are yeah. low. Yes. Didn't know yeah. somebody went to the UK, right?
1: Yeah. Lots of people went
0: somebody to Mexico, the- Hawaii. Like one of the people from Calgary literally traveled to London over
1: Christmas break where they have the new strain of COVID. Yeah. And they've completely locked the border down. Yeah. It's okay for us. It's like, do what I say, not as I do. Yeah. Is like fucking bullshit. (laughs) Especially when you work for the government. You are a public person. Like if you didn't think this was going to come out, you're an idiot. Yeah. Alberta is like the worst case of it, obviously. (laughs)
0: Alberta, it's still, it's now only just mandatory to wear masks inside. I feel like that's important to say. It is now, as of this past two weeks. Yeah. I want to say even week. It is now only mandatory that you have to wear a mask inside.
1: Province-wide, not city. Because it was city by city first, right? It was like Calgary first, Edmonton, and now it's province-wide. It was still not, but like Calgary still was like two weeks ago, they didn't have to wear a mask. Oh, yeah. Mm. Alberta's the worst case because the person that went to Hawaii, I think it was the municipal affairs officer, she told Jason Kenny she was going because you have to in yeah. government. You have to like, there has to be, there's protocols in place so that people can pick up the slack if you're gone. She wrote the official letter to him stating that she would be out of the country and he claimed after she got caught that he didn't know about it. Bye, Kenny. Goodbye. Bye, you fuck. Get him out of there. Get...
0: Who's controlling these people? Who's in control of these people? Like, why is this happening? Because people don't care.
1: Which kind of like leads into the, like our last one. Right. Our last point. We're in lockdown again.
0: (laughs) Yeah. We're in lockdown again. And it sounds like it's going to get worse. It looks like we're about to get a curfew. Quebec just got one. And I think we'll have one too. Our numbers are going up. I mean, it's weird. It feels weird that our numbers are going up and people are getting vaccinated. So there's like hope. Yes. But then also it's like, but I'll put you in curfew. Yeah. And also I'm so over Ford fucking threatening us. I'm sorry. (laughs) But like he did this before, like,
1: oh, don't make me put you in lockdown. Oh,
0: don't make me give you a curfew. do it guys what else can you do to us at this point
1: yeah there are lots of articles and studies by multiple different groups of people and scientists and sociologists and whatever that are stating that lockdowns don't work if you're locked down if you're locking down a large metropolitan but keeping open distribution centers and construction sites where there's hundreds and hundreds of people a day nothing is going to change yeah
0: i mean and just like for a perfect example
1: Yes, Lucas. Had
0: five people where my where Lucas works mm-hmm. had five people test positive, and they didn't find that out. Lucas's specific area didn't find that out until he tested positive, which is crazy. Where's the and contact also, like, tracing? It's nobody's. It's it's nobody's fault. It's just no, like, the virus not.
1: is everywhere. Like yes, which is like the threatening of fucking ford doesn't help
0: yeah exactly but
1: you're keeping certain shit open where there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people a day and then just telling the average person to like stay home because they have to do their personal responsibility yeah where's your personal responsibility where's your government responsibility it's so it's so crazy i don't know i'm like (sighs) very over it and i don't i am on the side of lockdowns don't work yeah because if they did we would be in better shape and we're not yeah and unless you're gonna literally stop everything for two weeks which you can't because people mm-hmm. would die, then we're, we're like, we have to just move on. And that, and I'm like we said before, I'm not a COVID denier. I'm not a mass denier. I do believe that the things, those things in place are important, mm-hmm. but lockdowns are only for, in the articles that I've been by reading by like the CDC and NPR, the like who, the world health mm-hmm. organizations, lockdowns are only there for short periods of time so that you can make space. And for hospitals and for like healthcare, like hopefully get prepared for the increase that's going to come because it which is which is why come. it
0: made sense I guess when it in the beginning in the beginning yeah whereas now it's getting a little bit it's getting harder and harder to buy into the lockdown I think for people yes
1: especially yeah. when case numbers are rising but deaths are still low mm-hmm. and the average age of people dying is like eighty five and I'm not saying that to be dismissive mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that to be like. It doesn't matter if old people die, mm-hmm. but death is a very natural part of life and no promise or nothing that a politician can do is going to stop mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And right. So, I sound probably like an anti-masker and an anti-COVID person, <laughs> but I'm not. I'm just like, I've been told for an entire year that I am like not a value really? to society. And so, yeah. At what point? Yeah. There needs
0: to be something. Well, like, yeah, I mean, I think we know now that it's not lockdowns aren't working. Maybe it's, and and do you know what? Maybe it's not just that lockdowns aren't working. Maybe it's not being enforced properly. And I don't know what that means. Like, but do we want to live in
1: a society that you, if you go outside your house, there's an armed guard there telling you to go back in? yeah, no, no, no Probably not. yeah. we don't want the Army to roll in here and like that kind of lockdown, like because that's happened in other countries, right? Yeah, of course. And
0: in Manitoba, there were, I will say Manitoba did a really good job of their um lockdown, yeah, like got their cases down. They like went into full essentials only which yeah. is weird to me. Um, Like essential items you could only buy oh. in store, which, mean, which meant that there were still people in the store, but they had like entire areas of stores blocked off, which was weird. <laughs> but they did a really good job of like locking people down and being like, we right. will find you if you leave your house, if you're getting
1: yeah. caught." But there's also like um a population density thing to consider totally. there probably, right? And like, space, there's space. Yeah. yeah. People usually live in single family homes yeah. or like have outdoor space that they can use and totally because when you look at into like small town Ontario or you look into like small town Alberta they're fine right. you know all of these like small rural communities are fine and then you go into the dense cities and there's massive spread but that's just cuz of how we are living and but the spread is very similar to like normal seasonal epi- and epidemics like the cold and the flu season the spread mm. is very, like very similar mm. so and I'm not saying this is just a flu I'm not doing any of that I'm just saying that, <laughs> and like you've said before, I don't think that we're ever going to be a hundred percent rid of it. No, of course not. It's not really about getting a hundred percent rid of it. That's, no. not,
0: that's not what the goal is. I think that people that think that that's the goal is, that's not it. It's about being accessible and making sure everything's, everyone's okay for people that do get it. Yes, totally. Yeah. Anyway, so that was our fast five. <laughs> cool. we need to edit that down,
1: Corinne. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Um, that was our fast five over what happened for the holidays. We hope everyone had a good holiday. We hope you stayed safe. Yes. Um, we hope you're doing your best this whole year. <laughs> the other day I asked, I asked a question. I was like, Oh, when did the blah, blah, blah happen? And they were like 2019. I was like, Oh, so like last month. And they're like a year ago. <laughs> and I was like I'm gonna look back on this and I'm literally gonna forget anything that happened this year it's gonna go like yeah. 2021 to 2019 I'm gonna have no memories from 2020 because I laid on my couch yeah. for an entire year also yeah. I've watched almost every Marvel movie in love that order <laughs> in the past week and
1: they hold up like uh universe order though not like in the order they came out right no no universal order yeah nice, nice. yeah I know. I am just going to turn 28 again. I can't turn 29. <laughs> like, No, fuck that noise. <laughs> I lost a
0: year of my life. So <laughs> I woke up this morning thinking.
1: Uh, yeah. Be kind to yourself also. Yeah. Just because, you know, I was having this discussion with somebody the other day too. There is like people that have the privilege that are have working from home. And it might seem that they're like moving on with their lives and they're like have stability and still have lives and all of those things. And if that's not the privilege that you have, and it's okay that you're not in the same place as those people. yeah, It's okay right. that if you've been on EI like me for almost a year. No, you haven't been on it for almost a year. <laughs> there was a brief period you took a couple months off. Right, when I finally had a serving job in the summer for two and a half months.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> so. You're trying, man. It's not like you haven't tried to get a job. No. As long as you're trying to do something, it's fine.
1: I've applied to every single little boss in my area to do like stocking shelves, to do like the in-store pickup, you know, when you can just order online. I've applied to Starbucks. I've applied to like, not jobs that I would be mad to have, but jobs I would never apply to in real and like normal times because mm-hmm. I'd be working in restaurants and they just must be so overwhelmed with candidates because I've never gotten a call back.
0: I also think it's like one of those things where they're just like, everybody wants, like there's nothing else to do. Why wouldn't you work?
1: Yeah, you know, so like anybody
0: that was part time is now full time. Anybody that's, and then I'm sure they hired people as well. You know. Yeah, I am so excited that we have Cyrus Marcus Ware on the podcast today. I'm so excited,
1: so excited. (laughs) (laughs) Chris, it's a great. It's like a dense episode, but it's fucking great. Yes, and I
0: specifically like it because of everything that we all just witnessed happening on the news in the states. Mm -hmm. I think the conversations that we have are super relevant to right now. Yeah. Considering we recorded this interview um, right before the holidays,
1: I think that it's it's going to hold up really nicely, especially this week. And it's going to be a really nice refresher and reminder to all of us about the work that still needs to happen.
0: Yeah, totally, mm-hmm. totally. Um, so I'm very excited for this. I have been a big fan of Cyrus's for a while. So here we go. Let's get to it. Okay, so I actually have a, a question about a work you did, um, Activist Love Letters.
2: How, when, did, when, did you, when did that work go up? I started doing that project in 2012. And so I've been running it for eight years. And it's an oh. interactive uh, performance uh, engagement that has strangers writing love letters to activists in their communities. And so now um, I've been doing it for about eight years and there's been thousands of letters that have been written and mailed all over the world, actually. Um, okay. So yeah, that one started in 2012. And it started for the first oh. time in Toronto at the Feminist Art Gallery or FED.
0: Wow. And I read about that project a little bit just on your website and like in a few little articles. And um, in it, you say that it has it considering your own activism and that of the people you hold dear. Um, how do you encourage people to have active and healthy conversations about activism with friends and family who don't necessarily agree with you? And like, do you have any tips for people?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, Activist Love this Letters was a great entry point for people to think about not only who are the activists in their communities, but am I an activist? Do yeah. I, you know, mm-hmm. what am I doing uh, yeah. in, in this movement for change? So, yeah, this is a moment where we saw a lot of uh, of people getting into the struggle, you know, in May and June uh-huh. when the revolution kind of kicked off, and all of this change making started to happen, uh-huh. and we're in this lockdown, and all of this you know activity sprung up in May and June uh, uh, after some of the the police killings, we saw so many people turning to activism in ways that maybe they hadn't before. And yeah, you get questions. You often will get questions from friends and loved ones who maybe don't quite understand. I think now is the time to just sort of uh, try to help people who maybe don't understand why we're in the streets uh, to to understand that the changes that people are pushing for are gonna benefit everybody. Everybody is gonna be freer. Everybody's gonna have what they need Mm -hmm. to thrive. And that's why we do the work that we do to make sure that we all get to make it in this world and not just uh, the 1%. So for people who are maybe new to organizing, whose family members are saying, what the heck are you doing going down to that rally? Or why are you, you know, posting what you're posting online? You know, this is an opportunity to have a conversation with those folks in your life about what freedom means to them and what uh, thriving would mean to them. And, and what kind right. of dreams they have and uh, help mm-hmm. them to understand that that's what we're pushing for too.
0: Have you had any instances in like the past that you can think of where it's it started to get riled up or it started to get like a little heated. And do you remember like specific sentences or
2: like specific things that you had to say to those people? Well, I mean, I've been very fortunate in that yeah. in my life, I've been surrounded by people who mostly uh, have supported my desire to be an activist. So in my family of origin, you know, when I got involved in organizing in 96 or 95 or whenever it was when I started organizing, um, you know, they were mostly on board. They were like, I don't totally get what you're doing, but I trust you. And, and I know that you know, if you say you're fighting for anti-Black racism to end, we know what that is and we agree that that should end. Um, you know, Fighting for trans justice was a little bit more of a learning curve for some of my family members. They had to understand what trans was. They had to understand all of these things before they could kind of get it. But now they totally get it and are champions of, the, of those struggles as well. Um, so I've been, I've been in a situation where I haven't had to practice uh, justifying my, my choices to those that I love. I've been in a good situation, but I certainly know lots of folks who do have to sort of justify their involvement. And one of the things that I would say is, you know, if it comes to, you know, pick a topic, let's say defunding the police, that's such a big one. And how do you get people, uh, you know, that you know and love to understand why this is an important issue? Mm-hmm. You know, you can break it down a couple of different ways. You can talk to them about their experience of being in the city and on the streets. Their experience of engagement with the police, their experience when things have gone wrong, when there's been crisis, conflict, or harm, and what handled, what helped them in that situation, um, was it you know a, a uniformed officer with a gun and a taser, or was it you know de-escalation strategies, or mm-hmm. you know other things that people do to try to help take some of the heat out of an argument, uh, you know, just sort of talking to them a little bit about what, uh, you know, what is it exactly that the police are doing well that you can name? You know, let's talk about those things. And mm-hmm. of course, that list is unfortunately not very long. And that starts to open the conversation a little bit yeah. into like, well, what are we spending all this money on if they're not particularly helpful in any of these situations? So, um, you know, there are ways that you can kind of break down the conversation to make it relatable to the person mm-hmm. and help situate it in, in, in response to their own life, you know, so that they can right. understand this is relevant to their own life. Right.
1: Thinking about activist love letters, there was also a situation with that specific piece, Cyrus, that it was like, I want to use the word
2: like stolen and recreated without your consent or your knowledge. Yes, it was, it was. It was plagiarized. It was the most heartbreaking thing. You <sighs> know, I started doing activist love letters, as I say, in in the winter of 2012. Mm-hmm from the very beginning of 2012. And I did the project as a way of supporting activists in my community, of making sure that they had the support and love and care around them so that they could stay in the struggle and they could keep going. So how heartbreaking to have a project that is rooted in supporting community and, and, and care uh, for each other, uh, taken and used in this other way. Unfortunately, when it was plagiarized, it was used in this very. It was sort of distorted. They, the the person who um who took the work, took the used the exact same name and and sort of recreated the performances, but without some of the political elements. So it actually was not even doing the political work. I mean, anyways, it's just such a bizarre thing. I ended up deciding. You know, the whole purpose of this project is to. Uh, have more love flowing okay. through the airway to uh, these folks who so desperately need our, our love and support. So I ended up uh, um, basically uh, publishing the work in Stephanie Springay's Instant Cla- Class Kit, which is a, 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 a movable, usable, digital, and in real life uh, activity kit for uh, teachers and, and folks who are educators to uh, animate art projects in their, in their classroom or in their communities. And so wow. activist love letters is now part of that. So anybody can do an activist love letter performance now. Oh, wow. And that that's to me was, a, was a way to do it was to just make it open source. Yeah. And so, look, let's all just use these resources and let's all keep the love flowing uh, to the activists in our communities. And that's been my solution.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. That's such a good way of like taking something that like you said kind of like hurt you like made you feel a little bit sad at the very beginning and like turning it on its head to make it helpful for for everybody where was it stolen again it was at the Smithsonian but
2: what like what's Yeah the- it was it was it was I was, was such a bizarre thing i was um it was a a a small independent um museum type organization in the states right. that uh that that stole the project and they uh showcased it at the Smithsonian Uh, um, uh, museum. So I was actually on a a panel giving a lecture in Montreal uh, about space making and change and activism. Mm -hmm. And I started getting these text messages from people saying, (laughs) congratulations for your work being at the Smithsonian. And I was like, what are they talking about? And that's, of course, how it came out. The Smithsonian was wonderful and published a retraction and published a statement, uh, you know, acknowledging and crediting my work. And that felt really care. Full, you know, it felt like it was a full of care act. Yeah. And I really appreciated that they did that and that yeah. they acknowledged that there had been a mistake made.
0: Yeah. How do you, how did you go about I I'm just like thinking about like instances that like we've had or like other artists have had where you've, you've come up with an idea. I mean, again, ideas are like so linear and whether and like what exactly it is, it's, you know, it's all subjective. But like, how did you go about realizing that like it was your work that the person had? copied like did, and how were you so sure that it was like your work that they had copied and they weren't like inspired in a different way by something else that then just like led you both to these same ideas almost simultaneously
2: well funnily enough i actually went to present at goldsmiths uh in the uk i was presenting on a panel about uh, uh queer and trans space making in Toronto. And um, my uh, PhD supervisor was also there and and they said, oh, you know, there's a a panel I'm moderating after, why don't you come to it? And there's actually somebody there, I'm just reading their paper, but they're talking about your work, I think, because they're talking about activist love letters. And so I went and we sat there with our mouths agape as a presenter presented an academic paper analyzing activist love letters as a performance but the plagiarized version.
0: So oh. it wasn't that was it wasn't that person, sorry to keep no. up, it wasn't that person that was presenting the
2: paper. It was, like, a, it was somebody who who collaborated with her uh, and she and the, and the and they wrote this this academic paper. And so through that reading of the paper, I found out that this person not only used the name of my project, they wrote to the same people that I wrote to they uh, performed, like, like they basically copied every element of the project, uh, so, and 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 then had this academic write about it, so I just, you see how your mouth is sort of <laughs> agape, that was neat, a but pleasure. at Goldsmiths University, in front of everybody, just sitting there being like, oh my <laughs> gosh, can you imagine sitting in a panel, and having someone else present your work back to you, but oh. as if it was somebody else's, it was the most Shocking, and of course, uh, Gloria Vecker was in that panel—a uh, black uh, a- academic and and writer from the Netherlands. Um, Jin Harita like all of these folks were in the room, and they all started responding. This is Cyrus's project. You're writing about Cyrus's project. How come you didn't cite Cyrus's project in your reference? Yeah. and and the person stammered and sort of didn't know what to say. Uh, you know. Because Do you think they of, knew? No, the they person... didn't know. Oh. They didn't know, and and they've since distanced themselves from the from the person. So it's actually kind of a sad story. But all of this is to say, one, uh, now there is an opportunity for anybody who wants to to do this project and to share it. Two, uh, there was a, an incredible amount of solidarity that I found from activists and academics and artists all over the world. I had Sarah Ahmed writing, you know, why uh, th- this person shouldn't be stealing my project. I had Gloria Vec. I had all of these incredible folks supporting my work. I had the Smithsonian writing this retraction. I had all of this, you know, love and support from my communities. So, I mean, what it showed, was activist love, actually, in the end. Even though this is such a terrible uh, beginning of the story, the end of the story was um, that this was an example of activists showing up for each other and saying, you know, uh, let's do this in a different way. And it also pushed me to do something that I had wanted to do anyways, which was to make the project open source to allow more love to fly through the airwaves.
0: Yeah. In that project you also you like ask like you have one big question kind of almost like your thesis question and it's if you could reach out to one person who moves you by what they do who would it be what is your answer to that
2: Oh my goodness it's so tricky. <laughs> I've written a lot of letters over the yeah. years. Um I mean I I love the idea of writing to of course there are so many folks who who are living who are uh doing such incredible work and i could name um you know i've written to giselle diaz who's an indigenous activist mm-hmm. uh here in this north part of turtle island i've written to leah laxmi Piepsina Samarasina, a disabled uh bipoc uh activist and an organizer now based in seattle i've written to you know to countless folks but today if you were to ask me today i'm feeling very moved and inspired by Octavia Butler. And so I think if I were writing a letter today to anybody in human history at any point and write them a message, I would write to her and say, Octavia, you look at 2020. I mean, oh my goodness. And I would just want to tell her, thank you for uh, giving us so many books and so many pieces of art to hold on to in this moment of stress and crisis. I had the chance to spend time with Octavia in the middle of, two, of the early 2000s, and she came to Toronto and we spent the day together and she um, talked a little bit about her uh, her process and how she came to write, what she wrote. Um, and she, she she talked about, you know, not necessarily feeling particularly predictive but basically just being able to follow the trajectory of human history if if we continue on this path without any changes what might happen but of yeah. course what she did was she wrote parable of the sower in 93 and and predicted 2020 exactly you know right wow. down to the right wing presidential hopeful having a campaign slogan make america great again i mean she predicted she predicted so much so yeah. i would want to write to her today i think i would want to write to her and say octavia we're on the eve of 2021, you know, everybody is hoping for change. You told us all that you touch, you change. Yeah. You know, here, oh, by the way, here, thanks. And that's what this project has been able to do is for so many people, it's given them an opportunity to finally say the thing that they've always wanted to say to that organizer in their community. Oh, by the way, thanks. Mm -hmm. This thing that you do, you don't know, maybe even realize but it's impacted me in this way, or I've never met you before, but hearing that you do this work has impacted me in this way. So I would wanna do that for Octavia and just remind her, thank you for everything that you've created. <laughs> oh. <laughs>
0: um, speaking of that, this current president right-wing mm-hmm. human we have right now, um, because I've noticed that because Maybe not because, but I've noticed that in the past four years, this word radical has been thrown around more than I was, that I had heard. Maybe I just wasn't paying attention from any other president. And I like, I find that the word radical, like words are so interesting, but like, because he's been throwing around this term, it's been taken to like all over to like its extremes, its like smallest points. It's sometimes used in like wrong formatting or like in wrong defining, and I noticed that you use the word radical in your most recent. I think it's safe to say presentation radical love. What does that word like? What does that word mean to you?
2: I mean, to me, it's like uh, you know. I come. I'm. I was born in '77, so you know. To me, I I grew up uh, unfortunately during the '80s, during all of the Valley Girl and like all of that lingo. So. <laughs> Radical was a really right. cool that we often would say. Uh, that's so rad, you know? Yeah. Um, so I definitely am from that generation. But to me now, radical really means pushing beyond the limits of what we normally do. It's pushing us outside of the status quo, outside of the standard expectations. And it is a radical, like a a departure from the norm, like a a completely different thing, uh, moment. So radical love was like, how do we do the most extreme, the most deep, the the most uh, entrenched, form of love (laughs) in our city, Uh, how do we, how do we push love to the ultimate limit and ensure that every single person has it? And so in Radical Love, I was centering that love around folks who are often the most marginalized. So Black and Afro-Indigenous trans women and non-binary people, you know, in public space and saying, what would it mean to radically reimagine our relationship to these communities and to, and to the city? You know and to say what would a city look like if it was radically committed to supporting uh, trans women and non-binary people in the city and ma- and making sure that they had everything that they needed to walk through that right. city street without fear without worry without you know with 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 with, with everything that they had to thrive um, so that word means a lot to me now because it really you know it it, it is about uh, a broad reimagining of what we currently know and expect, um, so yeah. to me, the word is still has an activist you know um, uh, p- pulse to it, no matter how much um uh you know uh Donald Trump wants to use it in a different way, no matter how <laughs> I hate to even say his name, but no matter how much others try to to co-opt our words and our language, we can hold on to it and say, no, the most radical thing here is us actually is activism yeah. is 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 fighting for justice it's not. You know your yeah. business. It's mm-hmm. interesting
0: because when you just described it, then it it feels very complimentary to like our current state. Whereas when he uses it, it feels quite negative. Like it feels it it feels like he's put a taint on it. Not the word specifically, but he feels like he's added like some something to it that makes it it sound bad, like a bad word or a bad term. You know.
2: So but it's interesting. This is what they say, I mean, they've, you know, they've tried yeah. to make social justice into a yes. bad term with social justice warrior yeah. They've tried to take all of these, freight, you know, revolution, they've tried to mm-hmm. take all of these, even activism, and and to mm-hmm. and to weaponize those words and to turn those words against us. And instead, we're saying, you can try to redefine this all you want, yeah. uh, but we know what is true and we know um, what we need to be doing right now.
1: Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. It's like just to add to the divide of the way that we interact with each other.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. And how
1: we can categorize each other. Um, that kind of leads me into another question, Cyrus. There's been a few influential, influential people and um, figureheads come through lately started saying it's Excuse me. Wow. I can't talk Uh snappy slogans such as defund the police immediately lose part of your audience. What is your reaction to
2: that? I'm going to say it in a snappy way. If we don't defend the police, we are going to lose our entire population of people because they are killing us one by one. Mm -hmm.
1: They are literally
2: killing us one by one. So the police system was started in Turtle Island. It was started in North America specifically to clear the land of Indigenous people and to ensure that Black people did not flee from slave labor camps. That was the entire purpose of the police force. And that is what continues today. That is why they over-police Black and Indigenous communities. That's why they over-police racialized communities. That's why they ensure that we are disenfranchised, that we are brought into the prison industrial complex and kept in the prison industrial complex.
1: You yes. know,
2: and when we and whenever we resist, then, then, then there is this extreme violence. So without uh, getting rid of the police uh, or defunding the police, or reducing, I would. I mean, I'm an uh, an abolitionist. So I believe in abolishing the police and all carceral systems. I do not believe that they keep our our, our, our society uh, safer or more secure. I do mm-hmm. not believe that they are protecting us from anything. Uh, they are a violent force that uh, was set up during a period of enslavement uh, to enforce and continue slavery. Slavery was only negatively abolished, uh, and it was continued through the police and prison system. And you can read, uh, tons of folks have written about this. Um, mm-hmm. Ruth Gilmore, and Gilmore you know, talks a lot about this idea of sl- slavery never being, a, it's an incomplete project, the abolition yes. of slavery. And so mm-hmm. the abolishing of the police and prison system is finally just finishing the work of abolishing slavery. So uh, with all due respect, Mr. President,
1: uh, without,
2: <laughs> um, without reducing uh, the impact of this force on our, our streets, we're going to continue to see the deaths that we're seeing. The police continue mm-hmm. to kill people uh, with impunity, they are never ever charged, Uh, there is never any consequence, and they continue to kill in particular Black people and Indigenous people, and it is reported widely as a message, as a warning, you know, Mm -hmm. that who is in charge, right? Uh So I go back to hip-hop, right, and that KRS-One song about the sound of the police, where he talks about, you know, if you take that, what is it, if you take if you take it and repeat it in a rude boy sample, overseer, overseer, officer, 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 like how the 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 straight line from the overseer on the slave labor camp to the officer patrolling the streets being a direct connection. Yeah. So everybody, I mean, listen to it in music, read it in theory. It's Everybody is saying the same thing. The police and prison system are connected to period a period of enslavement and we are trying to end that in our society so Mm -hmm. why would we continue to pump millions of dollars into this police force where they do not respond to conflict well they do not respond to crisis well they just kill mad people the first you know they arrive they shoot they don't Mm -hmm. they don't you know and and they don't won't respond or in any way solve uh, cases of harm. So they're not doing the work that we're paying them to do. And instead, they're brutalizing us and killing us, patrolling our streets, carting us, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So the only way that we can move forward with Black liberation is by eradicating these systems of violence that are bi- that the entire society is built on, that mm-hmm. that is is aimed to make sure that Black and Indigenous people don't have what we need to survive and thrive and as a black person he knows that but of course he's embedded in the system so he's he's saying what he's saying but yes. obviously we know that the only way that we're going to be able to have true liberation and justice is if we get rid of this multi-million dollar uh, white supremacist uh, force that is on the streets brutalizing racialized people every mm-hmm. single day
0: i um, think it's oh sorry i'm glad you knew that i was talking about obama without even saying yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think like such and just a perfect example of how like impartial these p- forces are is like the whole situation with the Adamson barbecue, how we've okay. like seen the like we know there's videos everywhere and how the police are dealing with the protesters um, who seem to be primarily white people in, in that outside of Adamson barbecue and how they deal with them versus how we just saw them dealing um like in may or uh june with the black lives matters march like it's just like how they're how they react to that situation versus how they react to the protest is so so it's just like such an exact it's like the exact example of what we've like you and everybody
2: has been talking about you know in the case of this barbecue joint, you have this man who is, <laughs> is, is intentionally endangering our entire yeah. city. Our entire city yeah. will be affected, you know, because this is an exponential virus. It, it increases exponentially and, mm-hmm. and, and it's so spreadable. So he's, he's endangering our entire community. So literally millions of people and nothing happens. He has a white supremacist neo-Nazi come and meet him and he is photographed shaking hands with a known Nazi, right? And that is put in the paper. And that is like, oh, wow, that's kind of shocking. But like, it's allowed <laughs> to continue. Meanwhile, in the summer, you have a situation where you have BLM protesters near statues that, statues, not human beings, mm-hmm. stone statues that got paint on them who spent night, a night in jail, who who are still facing charges, who are still, you know, facing all of these huge charges, you know, and they and they endangered exactly nobody, right? Right. They endangered exactly no humans. No humans were harmed in the splashing of paint on a statue. But in this case of the Adamson barbecue, not only were was an entire city harmed, but this person is potentially creating more harm by supporting this neo-Nazi and by Mm -hmm. this meeting. I mean, if you ever wanted to know if this was about more than restaurants, if this was about race, just look at the photo of him shaking hands with a Nazi, you'll understand what's happening. The police intentionally protected him. When I saw the video of them eventually arresting him, when they finally were you know because of public pressure when they finally did go and get him what you see in the video which i find so shocking is yes you see them bringing this guy out by the car yeah. but before you see them bringing the guy out you see them jump on a black man Mm-hmm. And they yes. tackle him to the ground. And because the video is all frantic and Blair Witch Project, you're kind of like, wait, who's that guy? Why are they picking up on that <laughs> guy? And then they shows you them bringing the Adamson guy out. So it's like, even in a video where they're trying to to, to show, okay, fine, guys, we're going to arrest this guy. They still, in the video, are brutalizing Black people, you know, on the sidewalk, just in the in the process of them being there. So whenever yeah. the police appear, there are these moments of violence and uh you know this is what we're talking about when we say you know this is this system is working exactly as it is intended it is working specifically to support white supremacy and to and to disenfranchise communities of color so it's no surprise that the police would stand by let the neo-nazi walk up let the handshake happen let the restaurant stay open let protect the anti-maskers who are standing there you know doing all yeah. of this work to support this this white supremacy that is the purpose of their police force that is what they do and so they're doing it perfectly well they're right. doing a great job they're doing a great job <laughs> at what they're intended to do which is why we're saying we don't want you doing this job and we don't want to spend millions of dollars on, on this anymore we want to reinvest that money into our communities into the things that we actually need like housing like like mm-hmm. shelter for, for everybody, like food, like like daycare, like programs, like community centers, mm-hmm. like parks. We we need, yeah. you know, we had doctors using garbage bags, garbage bags as PPE, because there wasn't enough PPE in the beginning of the pandemic, but we're spending millions of dollars on policing, you know, that are just gonna go stand outside of a dance and barbecue and let people walk in and eat their food. So I mean this is what we're talking about. This is not yeah. a snappy slogan. This is about the survival of all life on this planet. That we're talking about right probably.
0: my first thing that i was gonna say was like it's interesting to me that they tried to play it off as this like well small business small yeah. business versus big so box fun. stores and i was like the issue with that is that and they're taking pictures of people at costco and all these things but you're right it, it has i mean it has very little to do with the small business aspect because if it was about small business, it would still be about taking care of the people, customers that are entering your restaurant. And by doing that, you wear a mask, you don't prepare food and let people eat slobbery all over the restaurant, right? It's clearly not about small business if you're not willing to protect the customers that you have. Whereas at these kind of big boxers, again, we all know that big box stores versus the small business shutdown is problematic. We understand that. I, I it's very, it's hard to like look at, but. At least in some of these big boxers, we see people trying like they have their masks on. We're trying to take care of each other, you know, even though yes. it's, we're not necessarily six feet apart, we are trying our best to take care of ourselves, take care of our community and our people around us. Whereas yes. in that situation, there's no care.
2: No, there was no care. There was there was no care um, at all to uh, to the community that was coming to that restaurant. But also, I mean, let's just not you know, I'm so tired of right-wing white supremacists claiming poverty or describing themselves as poor when they're not. You know, right. so the courts have done this consistently. They've, you know, positioned themselves as every guy, as every, you know, fighting for the little guy when they're actually billionaires, right? And and what we see with the Adamson guy is he's actually very, very wealthy. He's very, 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 very mm-hmm. wealthy and uh, and has a lot of resources and isn't exactly the struggling mom and pop He's positioning himself as. And further, the uh, folks who are supporting him did a GoFundMe. Oh my God. They raised almost $200,000 for this person. So let's not shed any tears here for this person. This is somebody who's flagrantly you know not only like going against what what has been recommended by public health but endangering the lives of our entire city and being funded to do so and being granted visits by prominent nazis like what is happening here so i i just i just find this all to be so bizarre and i hope that people um you know see this for what it is this is you know this is not about a a struggling mom and pop who's just trying to get by. This is about a white supremacist who's not used to being told that he can't do something, a rich person who's not being told that he can't do something and is going ahead and just basically you know, d- endangering all of our lives yeah. at a time when you know, a black person picks up a can of spray paint and is tackled to the ground and arrested and spends a night in jail. So you know, this is not an equal system that we're talking about here.
0: Yeah. Do you know if that GoFundMe got shut
1: down?
2: I don't think it did. I
1: don't think so either.
2: I think they can remain
1: like an impartial platform because they actually don't do any kind of promotion or um, like furthering of the campaigns. If that makes sense, oh, like
0: Kickstarter would have, yeah, yeah. Like
1: Kickstarter, you can like hold them kind of accountable. Um, that's my understanding of the this situation as where it lies. Yeah, it's fucking bananas. It's so
2: cool. <laughs> and I think about like you know like literally the students in the TDSB. The teachers have what $10 a student for the entire year uh, to, to, to provide toys, books, uh, p- you know, PPE everything like everything included is about ten dollars per student per year that's how much they have but we're raising in a day two hundred thousand dollars to go towards a rich person's barbecue joint like what is happening in this society so we need to reinvest in education we need to reinvest in community we need uh, the government to invest in these things but also if we're going to put our hard-earned money into something let's invest in things that are actually supporting our communities not this nonsense it's just very bizarre Uh Uh, both things that you're passionate about
0: um, are art and activism, and you, I would say, almost always kind of seem to be combining them or like finding um, a relationship between them. And do you think that they, art and activism, have a symbiotic relationship?
2: Absolutely. I mean, you know, so much of my practice is really rooted in this Tony Cade Bambara quote from 82 where she says that the role of the artist from the oppressed or marginalized community is to make the revolution irresistible. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is essentially what uh, my job is as an artist is to be a catalyst, to mm-hmm. be uh, you know, creating work that makes the revolution so possible, so irresistible, so tantalizing that we can't possibly imagine not doing it. Um, So that to me seems very essential. And I think in terms of activism, our activism, particularly in the Movement for Black Lives, is strengthened and supported by artistic involvement. When you think about all of the, the work that's happened with groups like Black Lives Matter Toronto, or Black Lives Matter Canada, which I'm involved in with both, you know, and and how, you know, you know, through dance works like Rodney DeVerlis and Raven Wings, doing political choreography, through, you know, the banner making, like I, I make, you know, very large-scale banners, Jenna Reed does banners for for tons of different different movements, you know, thinking about the rainbow-colored smoke bombs, the performative aspects, like art is infused in this movement in such a deep way because it it strengthens the message and it allows people to understand what it is that we're fighting for in such beautiful ways. So one, art needs to be in the service of revolution, but two, activism needs to engage with artistic practice in order to be compelling and beautiful and engaging in the way that we see this current moment of activism being. So they're definitely interconnected and um they support each other and they augment each other and and when combined they can make some real magic happen so uh i'm very inspired by artists who have been involved in the movement and struggle like emily emory douglas you know like folks like this who have just done such incredible uh been incredible examples of what happens when you bring art and activism together
1: Mm
0: -hmm. i also think that it has a big deal with I mean, like art has such a big role in politics that we don't really consider in terms of like it it really helps us kind of like we were talking about with that idea of what radical means, right? Like it really helps like push us into a completely different place and make us rethink these ideas that we may um, be embedded in our brains kind of, you know. Mm. Yeah. Um, I was reading a, a, an article and it was talking a little bit about um, Adam Curtis theory. Are you familiar with that? No. No. Okay. I was just going to ask you like a more like a a question that I was like thinking about, (laughs) about, but it talks a lot about well, I don't know. It was like in reference in the article and it was like being concerned about our own individualism in art and how our own individualism in art sometimes does more harm than good. And it talks about like, should we be giving ourselves up to the individualism in art to give something bigger than us so like working together to attack the power rather than individually working alone to like have a smaller impact
2: Mm -hmm. so i was just
0: like i was just interested if you were familiar with that and like what that like means because i just read that and i it was just something that kind of like stuck out in an article that i was reading
2: yeah, I definitely have to read that. That sounds yeah, great.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I was more curious, like pick your brain about it because I know you, I, you are so, so smart. <laughs> oh,
2: thank you. I mean, I think that, I mean, I haven't read it, but certainly, no. I mean, I think that collaborating, you know, is a powerful strategy oh, well. in this moment mm-hmm. and thinking through how to bring our practices together to be even that much more impactful. So, I mean, I collaborate with artists a lot. I collaborate with, uh, with folks to create uh, work across disciplines. So recently, I did a project called Burn, Burned with Rodney Javerlis, which was a dance work, but it was also this textile work and this mm-hmm. performance artwork, which is you know true to my practice. And we created, but it was about this life right after the revolution. Um, so you know, collaborating across disciplines and across distance can be really beautiful and can mm-hmm. make um bigger messages happen. Uh, you know, so I don't know. I'm not I'm not I, I, I think that we need self-determination. So really? I think that everybody should have uh you know the ability to determine for themselves how they want to be and live in this world. Mm-hmm. But I'm much more into collectivity in terms of the struggle uh rather than individual um uh, individualism. Of course Which I think totally. kind of encourages, yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah. Um I have a question about your speaking about like process and collaborate collaboration um how do you decide what medium or what medium is going to best represent the project that you're working on to get it across the most in this like act in the
2: activism form like if you have a vision what is going to help you the most get it to other people i mean it all depends on the the context i mean it's so context dependent Mm -hmm. um you know when when we had the opportunity to. I, I was invited to to do a project for the Toronto Biennial for 2021 and 2019. And I mean, I normally work. Uh, I, I often work in performance art and and and, and visual arts so, so drawing, painting. Um, mm-hmm. But in that environment, it made sense to tell the story as a play that to tell the story about the future that uh, that I had been writing about Antarctica uh, to tell it as a to tell it as a play. And then I had the opportunity to create a second project. And I was given the medium of this video wall. What could you do with this large scale video wall at Ryerson? And so I chose to make an eight channel uh, video work that again was set in the future. So sometimes the conditions you know, kind of set the, the tone and sometimes mm-hmm. it's, um, it's just about what's the best way to kind of tell that story. Uh, you know, For me, writing the play Antarctica was a way of talking about climate change, white supremacy and colonization. Um, At the biennial at a time when I felt like that should be part of the conversation, if we're having a biennial on Turtle Island, what would that look like, Um, but it also allowed me to work with actors over a long period of time and collaborate with these BIPOC actors and that felt really amazing so the play was the right format for that message uh, so it depends on the, the context it was radical love because it was going to be out in the city mm-hmm. i wanted it to be these abstracted geometric shapes that um were sort of sculptural and that had a soundscape because i often think about you know moving through the city and how we often have our you know we have our our spotify playlist going and <laughs> <laughs> going to the city. and what would happen if you were moving through this environment but listening to the voices of trans people talking okay. about their experiences or their dream cities so um you know I, I use a lot of different mediums so i can no longer say i you know i'm somebody who draws i'm mean, like I, I draw and i make sculptures and i do plays and i do all of these different things so i guess i'm an interdisciplinary artist but it just depends on the context totally. uh, you know um totally
0: <laughs> yeah. Was Radical Love originally going to be at the Bentway, or did it have a different location?
2: It was. It was intended to be at the Bentway. It was ah. actually commissioned. I was invited to submit a proposal. Uh, and then that proposal was selected to be one of the two projects that was re- or yeah. one of the three projects that was realized. So it was always intended to be a collaboration with the Bentway. Where exactly it was going to go was a bit you know up in yeah. the air because they were doing some things offsite. I was intrigued about doing it on site at the Benway uh, for a couple of reasons, in part because you know when I did research um, to start that project, I talked to a whole bunch of indigenous black, and Afro-Indigenous people, trans people, about their experience of public space. And the folks who I talked to who experienced living without a house, they often talked about that area, underpasses being these um, contested spaces where people often gathered and congregated um, when there wasn't anywhere else to go. And so I was very interested in reinserting a trans narrative into that environment um Mm -hmm. to you know by you know that that celebrated these experiences of these trans folks who had experienced houselessness under that underpass.
0: Yeah I'd love to talk to you about that more later on just because I'm writing this article for Dance Current that like Mm -hmm. is talking about performance art and like how it's being transitioned following the pandemic in terms of like losing our public space Mm-hmm. but so that I mean just like that location has just been used so much over the past summer because of what's happening because everything's yeah. like moving to our outdoor spaces or to like our site specific so I was just curious about whether that was like intended for there and how you had to maybe transition but I'm glad you didn't have to
2: <laughs> yeah it was it was kind of because it was already commissioned by them that was yeah you know but I do I do think thing. that it is a very interesting thing that that now uh you know if we are doing public work it has to be something that you could see from far away so there were these mm-hmm. um marks on the cement that said you know please enjoy the art from six feet apart you know mm-hmm. so even so it was definitely an installation during COVID. You yeah know? It had those vibes <laughs> to it for sure right
0: that space is just so interesting i mean they're doing I don't actually know who the people are that run the Bentway like program for like art or movement or whatever it is. But um, I, they're doing such a good job of just like commissioning work for that location as well as like people are using that space just like in their own ways as well. It's like, it's been really interesting to see how that space has developed throughout this past like eight month period. And then before that, like, I feel like I just heard about that space a year and a half ago, maybe, you know, it's it's really, it's really interesting. (laughs) Um, have you witnessed ways that, um, art is ineffectively used with activism?
2: Um,
0: you don't have to like call someone out maybe, but maybe just like, if there's like a pattern or something that you have witnessed.
2: I wouldn't say I have really. I mean, I think that, um, you know, you can tell when something is genuinely connected to community. Mm-hmm. Or connected yes. to the um the issue, you know, versus uh, you know just sort of like a, a bit of a stretch. Right. so certainly you know you, you can see some projects that are more entrenched or, or connected or deeply rooted in in the community that they're you know affected most affected by the right. issue that they're talking about, and you can tell those projects that they they have a bit more meat to them and they have a bit more umph because they're actually rooted in the communities that. That that the subject is is related to, mm-hmm. um, versus an artist who says, "Well, I just want to make something about homelessness or something," but they're not actually connected to street-involved uh, folks or community. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, certainly you can tell when something is 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 actually connected. But in general, I think everybody should just keep trying to bring it together, even if it's mm-hmm. imperfect, even if you stumble, you know. But you know, really trying to root your practice in a in an authenticity. So, you know, if you're gonna make something about a, a social movement or a social issue, uh, you know, do it in a genuine way, you know, don't do it just because it's the trendy thing to do, but right. how to actually use your work in the service of revolution, as Tony K. Brumbera says, how do you use your work, you know, to actually support and move that issue forward because our lives depend on it, not mm-hmm. because you want to get the commission, right? Mm-hmm. So um, yes. that's a big thing. Mm-hmm.
1: I have a, like, just say for clarification question, because I've seen both written, is what is the difference to you between like pro, the term protest art and art and activism or activism in art? Well, I
2: mean, it's, you know, I, everyone has different uh, descriptions and right. understanding of these words. But I mean, when I think about um, protest art, it's often described in a dismissive way or it's described in, in a, you know, and I think that what we're saying is that you know, um, I would like us to reimagine this work that we're doing to try to save all life on this planet, Mm -hmm. to try to eradicate white supremacy, to try to solve climate change, to try to ensure that trans people get to live long enough to be elders, to try to resolve the issues of colonialism and violence that have impacted indigenous communities, that those things are not protests. That is the actual work of living on this planet with any human dignity at the moment mm-hmm. is to struggle and fight for those kind of changes, because we are living in a world that is so gone so off the map that we need to get back to uh, care and to and to supporting each other and to and to surviving on this planet. So. I would say that you know, because this work is actually just the work of living on this planet at this moment, is trying to ensure that we all survive this, um, you know, that, that, that is something more than just a protest. That is, uh, you know, uh, that suggests that all of our work is in opposition to only to the status quo and that we're always gonna be in relation to the status quo. And what I'm saying is, fuck the government fuck the status quo, fuck white supremacy, fuck all of that. Like that actually is, sorry, I'm swearing so much, but like that's, that, okay, that, God, that's, over, there. that's <laughs> over there. And over yes. here, we're building our own thing. We're building a new thing from the ground up. We're building an abolitionist society that, that, that supports uh, life on this planet, that supports, uh, you know, um, the earth that supports Mm -hmm. Black people, that that ensures that disabled people survive. We're we're building our own thing from the ground up. We're Mm -hmm. building this beautiful new world. Please come join us. But we're not actually necessarily just focused on tearing down your old ways. We're building new ways on our own. And Mm -hmm. so, the art and a- activism that I've been talking about has been deeply invested in this building project. This yes. uh, building and reimagining, uh, you know, a world where we all get to be freer, uh, and that is so beautiful. So it's not uh, just about, uh, you know, saying, "Oh, I don't like Trump." It's about saying, "Okay, well, fuck Trump. Trump's over there." <laughs> we're actually over here and we're building a new world together. Uh, mm-hmm. Please come and join us. So that's what I'm really interested in is, is the ways that uh, artistic practice and creativity can help us to imagine a future that we haven't yet dreamed up mm-hmm. and how activism can help us you know, push to get there. So the artists help us to imagine it and the activists help us to make sure that we get there. And that's what I'm really interested in.
0: Mm-hmm do you think that will, do you believe, I guess, and in your, maybe in your dreams, I mean, there's always work to be done, but do you think we'll ever get to a spot where um, this work might not be, like activism and protesting might not be as prevalent? Like if we, although like moving forward, like say we get to this perfect, this world that we're like, you're, we're building together. Do you think you'll get to a spot where
2: maybe you don't need to
0: protest anymore
2: or anything or yeah I mean that's I mean I'm I'm uh, again I grew up you know uh, the age that I I grew up I was sort of coming of age in the 90s and I was a really big fan of Asian Dub Foundation out of the UK and they have this beautiful song called Committed to Life with Asada Shakur and Asada Shakur says in that song she says that she wishes that she had been born into a world where she didn't have to be a struggler or an Mm -hmm. activist She says that she is a reluctant warrior, a reluctant struggler, because she would rather be free to do so much more. So she talks about being a sculptor, a gardener, a carpenter, Like she would love to be doing all of these other things. But right now she's forced into the role of struggler because she's committed to life, because she knows that that's the only way to live with any human dignity on the planet at the moment is to struggle. That's what she says in that song. So I've been really thinking about that and thinking, okay, in the future, uh, when we get to this place where we don't have to spend all of our time struggling, we will be free to be so much more. So we absolutely are going to get to a place where all of the folks who are full-time struggling right now, can be free to be so much more. They can be the sculptor and the gardener and the carpenter and whatever else they want to do with their, with their life and their time uh, because they will be free to be those things because they're not going to be in a perpetual system of struggle. We will get there, absolutely. We are absolutely already halfway there. We're more than halfway there. The, <laughs> the system that we're in right now is going through a life cycle shift. Systems go through life cycles in the same way that living things do. Our system went through a period of rapid growth and expansion through industrialization and through the modernist period and then through postmodernism and expand and expand and expand and grow. And and capitalism, you know, is a failed project. It is a dying project and it is now in a period of collapse. Mm -hmm. The system is collapsing into itself and something new is being birthed in its place. The thing that is new that is being birthed in its place Is growing from seeds that our ancestors planted. So, that new forest that is growing in place of the old one that is dying is growing in the deep, rich earth of years and years and years of activism, you know, of decades of activism. So, we are already watering the plants that are already growing for the new society. We're already more than halfway towards the change that needs to happen. So we will get there and we will get to a place where we will all be able to finally rest, where we will all be able to finally say slavery has been abolished We are free, you know, where we will be able, where my children's children will be born outside of a world where there is police and prisons and carceral violence. We will get there and we will be freer and we will be able to use our time in vastly different ways to love each other, to make food for each other, to dance in the streets, to spray paint on maple leaves, to whatever we want to do. Like we can just, uh, I don't know, jump rope. Whatever we want to do, we can just do it because we'll be free to do, to be so much more, as Asada reminds us. So, I mean, I think our victory is assured. Asada says, we can win, we will win our liberation. And we will, we will get to a place where the world is much freer where we have finally eradicated white supremacy, where we have gotten rid of the systemic ableism that you know is so violent towards disabled and mad people and deaf people. We will make a world where trans people get to live to be elders. And as a result, we'll all get to rest. We'll finally get to rest. And I can't wait to meet you all there and we will be there for sure. So.
1: <laughs> I feel like you might've just answered my next question through that lovely response, but I'm gonna ask it anyways. In times like this, where it seems like there's no end to the work,
2: what keeps you going? I think that there's just this, this potential of a future that is different than the one that we're in now. Totally. You know, that is inspiration, you know? Um, I, I, I came, I come from Memphis, Tennessee, from, from where my dad's family's from, and we spent generations on slave labor camps, generations. You know my great-grandparents were born in into slavery on a slave labor camp so it's not many generations ago for me it's like three generations you know so uh, my great-grandparents so um you know i remember talking to my grandmother's there's eldest sister there was a very big age difference between her eldest because there was a lot you know when people had a lot of kids uh-huh. um and i can remember her talking about uh before she died in the 90s, talking about that experience uh, in the in the period just after the ending of slavery, you know, she was alive in that period of reclamation that they call, you know, and just describing that, uh, you know, experience to me was just fascinating. So I have committed my life to ensuring that that phrase "never again" is true, that we will never again um, live under those conditions, that we will never again keep people enslaved. And so the work that I'm doing uh, is is to ensure that that her generation finally gets to rest, you know, that my great grandparents finally get to rest, knowing that when they dreamt that their children or that their children's children would be born free, well, I'm going to try to make sure that my daughter's children are born free. And so that means that my daughter's children will not be hearing the whoop whoop of the police sirens, will not be targeted because they're black, will not be you know, targeted because they're disabled, they will be free. And so that keeps me going. I know that we will get there. I am continuing the work of my ancestors and I, I can't wait to be an old man mm-hmm. and with my daughter and, and her children if she chooses to have them free, liberated and free. That keeps me going, yeah. may it be.
0: Amazing. I think that is a good place to end. Can we ask you a question before you, sure. we go? Sure. Um, unless, Corinne, did you want to ask that one last question about, um, well, actually, yeah, I'll just go. I'll ask you. <laughs> um, we just, before I ask you the final question, um, we recently, and you may not be able to speak on this at all, but uh, Rodney Devillaris has, mm-hmm. has uh, he said he's he stepped
2: down now from Black Lives Matter.
0: Um and you're still active in the in the organization
2: correct? Yeah, so actually the Rodney is still involved in Black Lives Matter oh. Canada but not in Black Lives Matter Toronto. So we launched okay. uh, we're just launching Black Lives Matter Canada. Which uh, is finally just being able to expand okay. and support this network of of chapters all across uh, this north part of Turtle Island. So I'm one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter Canada, along with Rodney. Um, and so uh, he's focusing on on the sort of the national scope, um, mm. and then some of us are involved in both. So um, so so I'm involved in the Toronto chapter as well as Canada. Oh, okay, that's great. That provides so much clarity. Thank you so yes.
0: much. <laughs> um, Is being an artist fucking killing you?
2: Uh-uh, no, absolutely <laughs> not. It's saving my life. Being an artist is fucking saving my life. That's what I would say. It is, uh, you know, I wake up in the morning, and I know what I want to do. I mean, I draw, I paint, I, I dance, I sing, I, you know, to myself, I don't sing to other humans, but I, <laughs> I you know, I, I, I can't sing at all, but I, but I, I, I create, um, because that is, I mean, when I think about the early part of this pandemic, I don't know about the rest of you, but at first, all of my work was canceled, you know, everything was just sort of, you know, the bottom fell out of everything, and what was left of course, was my practice, you know, it never leaves you really, you know, so I I started making digital art, I started drawing more, I started doing all these things. So my practice is a gift, and I'm very thankful to be able to practice it and to get to do it every day. Um, Not to say that as artists, we don't need to take breaks, and we don't need to, you know, we get burnt out, and we, you know, and sometimes even lose your inspiration. But, you know, it's something that I keep coming back to over and over again through my life. And so, being an artist right now is saving my life. I'm really thankful. That's so lovely. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Um,
0: if people are looking to find you and find your work, where can they find you?
2: Ah, yes, they can. Uh, I have a website, cyrusmarcusware.com, um, but I'm uh, very active on Instagram also, as cyrusmarcusware, and I uh, post a lot and zany, uh, ridiculous things.
0: <laughs> I went to go watch your live last night, and it wouldn't let me.
2: Oh no. It, yeah. uh, the Simson Invalid
0: one yeah. Uh, yeah. I it honestly like I went to go into it and it wouldn't even um, it just kept saying like something's wrong with this oh. and I tried like three times and I was like, oh, I wonder if
2: that's no. like a. Uh, yeah anyway. I, I like love doing life. these lives. I did a live <laughs> yesterday with Nomi who's one of the, who's artistic director of Sims Invalid, which oh. is this uh, disability justice uh, group art, arts group out of the state. And uh, I've had a chance to do a couple of lives with different folks, mm-hmm. and it's always such a pleasure. And it's just fun to use that medium to, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, in, in new ways. So yeah, I yeah. think that it's saved now as an as an IGTV, I'll so have you can watch, watch it. it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Yeah.
2: <laughs> awesome.
0: Thank you so Perfect. much for everybody listening. If you have any questions for us, if you enjoyed this interview, if you like what you heard, go to um, iTunes, leave us a review, rate us, let us know what you think. Feel free to DM us on Instagram, find us on Facebook, go to our Patreon page, <laughs> um, catch us wherever you like. And thank you so much.